Our reading comes from Romans chapter 11 this morning as we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. Uh, And as we've noted in previous weeks, as we come towards the end of this sort of mini-series within a series, if you like, on Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's been addressing this issue of what do we do with all of these Israelites who don't believe uh, in their own Savior, and he comes to his conclusion uh, here before moving on uh, into chapter 12. And so we read in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through to 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And we ask that God will bless us as we read His Word together this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do confess that it is wonderful, truly marvelous that we might gather in Your presence, that we might be able to stand in the very presence of the God of this universe and give You our praise and our thanks. Lord God, this week we ask as we gather before Your Word that You might meet with us. You might bless us, enrich us, lead us on, have us grow, challenge us. Do whatever is necessary, Lord, that we might be closer to You this week than we were in this week gone by. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You might meet with us as we read it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I struggled this morning to know uh, how far I should, uh, I should go with this when uh, I was thinking through I wanted to begin. You may have been watching or keeping up with the U.S. Open uh, in the tennis this past week, and you'll be aware that we have uh, a British girl uh, who did surprisingly well at Wimbledon, given how young she is, she's a, just a teenager, um, who had entered the U.S. Open, and as you'll be aware, had come all the way from qualifying right the way through. Now, if you didn't see the final last night, I'm not going to spoil that for you, uh, but it has never been done before for somebody to come into a major tournament in tennis at the qualifying stage play three rounds of qualifying, get all the way through and right through 
uh, to the final and then to win. And whether she does or not, I will leave you to find out uh, if you are hoping to watch it today uh, and find out how she did, although how you can escape uh, these things, I don't know. The news just peddles all this information on a 24-hour basis. But nobody was confident that she would make it to the final. Nobody was all that confident. She did well. She's clearly an extremely talented individual. And were she from another country, and were we all in a different country, we might have viewed things a little bit differently. But we're from the UK, and we're specifically in Scotland uh, today, and so that colors the way we view how people are going to do, how well people will achieve. There is a, a sense in which the glory days of our country and the greatest achievements of our sportsmen and women or our politicians or um, our scholars or whatever it might be are in the past. We've had our day and now um, the, 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 the time at the top and the, the time in the limelight has passed on to other parts of the world, other countries. It's not for us to have the heights of a a Federer or a Nadal or a Djokovic or a World Cup winning football team or a great triumph at the Olympics. And even when we do well at the Olympics, we always spot the fact that we're never the top of the medal table anymore like we were back in the good old days. So often it's been said, what distinguishes us from the United States or Australia is a certain lack of optimism about how we will do and about how things will go. We have a a contentment in our country, don't we, to, to look at the way things are and say that yes, things could be so much worse, but they could be so much better, so we're fine where we are in the middle. Things aren't that bad. We're all right, and that's good enough. And it's hard for us to see things differently when it comes to our own lives. I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, but I know in my own life so often this is the way I think about my faith, is that it could be a lot worse. (laughs) It could be an awful lot better, but I'm kind of jogging along somewhere in the middle, and that'll just have to do for me. Things will probably just keep going that way. It'll pan out fine, but but I'll never be the man that I want to be in Christ. I'll never overcome this problem, that particular setback in my life. There will always be something that just keeps me where I am. There will never be real greatness in my life and my walk with the Lord. And we can think about that with regards to church life, can't we? Where perhaps some of us, and I'm really trying hard not to look at any particular individuals in the church, will remember the days of the 50s and the 60s when the church in the UK was at its absolute height, numerically speaking, and almost every church in the land was full of people. Christians were all over the place. It seemed churches were everywhere. Money flowed into churches, and churches did amazing things with it, and yet that's not where we are today. No one comes to church anymore, we're told. We find that we share the gospel, and not many people do respond. And so we're, we're not downhearted, not dejected, but we slip into that way of thinking that things could be better, but they could be a lot worse. So we'll just jog along where we are and, and not expect too much. We don't like to set our sights high and believe things will work because we're, we're afraid sometimes of failure. And we would rather not fail and just stay 
uh, where we are. So we're weary of striving and of hoping. And that fear of failure ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. All too often, it's something that was revisited again and again, not to overplay the tennis uh, theme of things, but in Andy Murray's career, where he would do so well and just get to that moment where we're all sitting at home watching him, willing him to go on, and you can see the head goes down, and the anger begins to boil over, and he feels he can't do it, and so he doesn't. And we find frustration uh, comes again, and so it is in, in our lives. In our passage this morning, Paul is addressing something of a similar situation. The church is going through a really peculiar experience where the church to begin with was predominantly Jewish. It was exclusively Jewish to begin with. And as the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world at the time, we find that it becomes increasingly a Gentile church And now it's got to the point where clearly the number of Jews within the church is dwindling away. And there is a certain feeling of superiority amongst the Gentiles and the church threatens to be divided. There is a sense within uh, the Christian community that things aren't going right, that things aren't going as well as they ought to do. If you were to to explain from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts— that the story of the church, you would anticipate from the end of Acts, there to be a vast number of, of Jewish men and women in every generation pouring into the church as they realize their Messiah, their Savior has come. But that's not happening. In fact, it's becoming clear, and we find it across the New Testament, it becomes very clear that Israel as, as a people, as a nation, begins to actively oppose the Christians, becomes the first persecutor of the church, and then instigates the Roman Empire to persecute the church uh, on their behalf. And there's that sense of dislocation. Things aren't going right. could be a lot worse. It should be a lot better. So where do we go and what do we do with that feeling that, that things aren't right? Do we just say, well, it's the way it's going to be, and just jog on, or is something to be done? Is God done with Israel? Has He just moved on? Is the church just for the Gentile world now? Is this the new reality? Paul addresses that sort of sense of hopelessness for his people at the end of this chapter. He's been dealing with it since chapter 9. We've thought about that over the last few weeks. And he shows us here that far from fearing failure has come for Israel, that he has a great hope in the face of all the evidence that he sees in the world around him. He has a great hope for his fellow Jews that should give us confidence as we go into the world today as a Christian people with the gospel. Now, we might ask, how is it possible that God might bring change to our lives, to our communities, when they're so disinterested and sometimes push against the gospel as we share God with them. And Paul addresses that as he deals with Israel here at the close of chapter 11. And we find that in Israel, the mystery of salvation is revealed. In verses 25 to 27, Paul begins to um, draw a conclusion to the things he's been talking about in chapters 9 and 10 and the first uh, two-thirds of 11. And he's been balancing two things in these chapters. He's been balancing the sovereign work of God in saving men and women, 
and the rebelliousness of humanity as we hear that call to repent, to be restored and to be rested, but we ultimately reject it. How can this be if God is sovereign? If God calls all to repentance and saves some and leaves others in their sin, which is what they want, then how can they be held to account for that? Paul has concluded in uh, chapters 9 and 10 that God holds them to account because this is what they want. They don't want God. They want to reject Him. And God, by leaving them in their rejection, is in no way to blame. And they'll answer for that. But God remains sovereign over all, and He graciously extends His salvation to sinful men and women when He doesn't need to, and calls them to follow Christ which they do. Paul has very carefully laid this out to show how it can be that Israel can be called so powerfully for thousands of years and yet rebel, and God can still be just at the same time. God has blessed them beyond measure and yet is giving them what they want and holds them responsible. However, Paul is telling us and has told us over the last couple of chapters, this isn't where it all ends for ethnic Israelites. And this week, he comes to his conclusion and he makes it plain he's not done with Israel in the slightest. In fact, he says in these opening verses that he doesn't want the Gentile church to be unaware of what God is doing. He says, there's a mystery here and I want you to to be aware of what's going on, which sounds peculiar because a mystery is something you don't know. So, If there's a mystery here, then you're never going to know, but that's not the way that the word mystery works in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the way the word mystery works is that it is something which has been obscured, hidden, clouded, but is being or will be revealed. There is always an anticipation of revelation that goes with the idea of mystery in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why The book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation. God is revealing the mystery of his plans and his purposes for salvation in in the world, not just in the day of John who writes it, but right the way through until the return uh, of Jesus. Mystery and revelation go together in Paul's mind. So, Paul is revealing a mystery to uh, the Gentile church and to us today. And as he reveals this. He says, it's mysterious what has happened to Israel. God promised so much, but they've still failed. But how can that be when God is in control of everything? Well, he tells us Israel is hardened to God, hardened by God specifically for a purpose. And it's only for a time. Now, last week we remember Paul has said this, it's so that the gospel will go to the Gentile world and he repeats that here. That's exactly what God is doing. The Jews are rejecting their Savior in order, although they don't know it, so that the gospel might pour out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the whole vast expanse of the world, the vast unnumbered nations, and so they might receive the gospel. Israel has turned its back on God. But now, Paul says, we must remember this hardening will come to an end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's a 
a slightly tricky phrase. There are a few little tricky things uh, in this passage that might be helpful for us to unpack a little. This doesn't mean every Gentile in the world will be saved. I think we're probably all, uh, probably all down with that. We recognize that that's not what Paul is saying here. When he says the fullness of the Gentiles, he doesn't mean every man, woman, child that ever has been or will be uh, will be saved. What he means is that all those that God has elected for salvation, as he's talked about in chapters um, 8 and then into 9 and 10 and 11, all those will be saved. God will not lose a single person in the entire world that he sets out to save, which is what Jesus says, doesn't he, when um, in John's gospel in the high priestly prayer when he talks about um, the people he's praying for. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for your people in the world that you might strengthen them and be with them and, and keep them because I haven't lost any of them. Not one. And that's being repeated here. The Gentile world, all those that God sets out to save will be saved. Now, we have no idea who these people are. So when God tells us to go into the world with the gospel, we preach the gospel to everyone in the hope that everybody we meet will be saved. Because they might be, who knows? And once that has happened, God will then have Israel restored. Now, what he means by that is as this passage and the rest of chapter 11 in particular reveals, is the same thing for the Gentiles. And it's an amazing thing. So God goes to the Jews and for thousands of years reveals himself to them, gives them his word, teaches them his laws, his ways. He constructs a whole structure of life around them so that they would know God and love him and serve him. And that is the mechanism by which Jesus is brought into the world as the Savior And as the Jews begin to reject the Savior, he goes to the Gentile world and they receive all of those benefits. We've covered this, remember, in chapters 9 and 10. They receive all of the benefits of knowing God, all the promises of God to the Jews. The Gentiles begin to receive the fruits of that. And then, at some point, God reveals to the Jews that they're missing out on all of these promises and look over there. They're in receipt of all of these things that you should have. And and the Savior is right there. And if you will turn to Him, you will get all of these things you've been waiting for more than 3,000 years for. And the expectation is that they respond in huge enthusiasm. And a vast number of Jewish men and women are saved. And then as a result, as we dealt with last week and in the week before that, we find as Israel, as the fullness of Israel is then brought in, restored to be God's people, incorporated back into the the congregation of God's people, we find that the whole world receives blessing beyond measure. And I think that that is ultimately the, the, the full coming of the kingdom of God and then ultimately the restoration of the world as Christ makes it all new again and all his people live in, uh, under his kingship. And there is no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin and death. It goes from the Jews to the Gentiles to the Jews to the whole of the world. And in this way, Paul says, this is the mystery of salvation revealed to you. 
This is what God is doing. Why it seems so strange that his people are walking in rebellion to him, it's not strange. It's not a waste. God isn't squandering his people. He isn't going back on his promises. He's keeping all of these things together in the way that only an infinitely powerful and infinitely intelligent God could. And he's drawing all of these threads together into one amazing whole. And this is exactly what we see in the Gospels and into the book of Acts. As the Gospel spreads from the Jews out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, we find the Gentiles coming in, and we find Jews go on responding to the Gospel, and they will do so right through to the end of time, although there will come a point at which there is a great inpouring uh, of Jews into um, the, the family of God. And Israel will see salvation, and here that mystery is then fully revealed. They turn to their Savior. Their Deliverer comes out of Zion, the heavenly city. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God isn't saying that Israel will continue alongside the church, and that somehow Israel will be saved by obeying the old covenant, and the church obeys the new covenant, and then everything's fine. That goes against everything he said in Romans chapter 1 right through to chapter 11. They'll be saved by Jesus the same way everybody is saved and brought into the family of God. And he makes that clear in 26 and 27, this deliverer that comes from the heavenly city, not from the earthly city, not from the world. He comes from heaven itself, and he takes away their sins. There is no greater description of Jesus than that, the man who comes from heaven and bears away the sins of his people, just as with the Gentiles. This doesn't mean every Jew in the world will be saved, but it means the full number that God has elected for salvation, as it always has been, will be redeemed. God will save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he does so first by going to Israel. And being rejected, his gospel only increases in exponential degree and then he returns to Israel before finally blessing the whole of creation. Everything God does is focused on that. Everything he does. The salvation of the world, regardless of who you are or where you're from or what your history is, nothing stands in the way of God saving his people, his congregation, whether Jew or Gentile. And again, because I seem to be torturing the tennis metaphors this morning, um, you will be aware, I can't spoil it for you because Novak Djokovic hasn't played his final yet. He'll be doing so today. Um, But Novak Djokovic is um, aiming to become the first man since Rod Laver in 1969 to, to win all four Grand Slams in a calendar year. Huge pressure on him. But of anyone in the world who could do it, this is the man. Novak Djokovic dedicates everything in his life to tennis, literally everything. Every gram of food that he puts in his mouth, every minute of sleep he gets, every um, element of his daily routine, his entire calendar throughout the year, everything focuses on him winning tennis matches, which seems a little bit silly to put it that way, but that's ultimately what he's all about doesn't matter whether it's the first round or the final. It's about winning the next match. He is entirely focused on that, which is why he is arguably, controversially, the greatest tennis player of all time. Because nothing will stand in his way. And God 
is entirely focused on saving all of his people from Eden to the new creation, and he does so with everything at his disposal. He plows it all into that end. And the expectation is that as nothing stands in God's way, so nothing will stand in our way when we become Christians. There is nothing that God cannot help us through as we grow in Him. And we will feel frustrated and downcast and upset for all sorts of reasons, as well as elated and joy-filled and uh, overflowing with blessings. But our frustrations at our own slowness, at the slowness of the gospel to penetrate into the community and see people saved, all of that must be put into perspective. God is focused completely on saving and transforming you and me and the people around you and the people in Ladywell and Livingston and Scotland and uh, in the wider world. And this changes the way we see our trials and our tribulations. This changes the way we see our frustrations as well as our triumphs and our blessings. If He is so focused on this, we also ought to be, and we plow everything we have and everything we are into the task of seeing his goal completed. Israel struggles so much, and for a time are hardened. But it is only so the greater blessing for the world comes about, and we are the blessed recipients of that, and they will be too in the future. So let's persevere even when we feel far from the Lord. Even when our brothers and sisters appear to be away from the Lord and are struggling, we can have confidence that God will always be faithful. Nothing will stop him in his saving work. Absolutely nothing. It never has. And it never will. In Israel, the mystery of salvation is revealed to us. In Israel, the fullness of God's love is revealed to us in 28 through to 32. Paul paints a little bit more of the picture for us. And in these verses, he makes it clear that in Israel, the fullness of God's love is made known in the wider world, even though Israel are for a time the enemies of the church. He says they're the enemies of the gospel uh, for your sake. And what Paul is talking about is how the Jews are not just resisting the gospel, they're actually um, beginning to oppress Christians who were by far the minority in the world uh, at the time. And he says, they're your enemies, essentially, for the message that you have not just shared with them, but that has transformed your life, that has become what your life is all about. Your very core identity is the grounds of their enmity with you. And and this has been a, a problem with Israel since the beginning. They have constantly been the recipients of God's blessings, but worked against God and His work of salvation in the world. And we can think of numerous cases too many to go into uh, this morning where they've done that. They've been led out of Egypt and immediately grumble and want to go back. They have fallen down and worshipped golden idols as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God for their good and for their blessing. And the same when they enter the promised land, and the same when they're established as a kingdom, and the same when their kingdom is divided, and on and on and on. They simultaneously embrace the salvation of God and reject it in large number. And Paul says the same is true today. However, because God has made a covenant with their forefathers, they are still beloved, as as a firstborn son, as it were. 
they are still loved by God. They are not rejected by God because, and this is one of the most wonderful things we can hear in God's Word, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot and will not ever be taken away. And this means that although Israel is currently opposing God, Paul says, he hasn't forgotten his promises to them, and he will bring their salvation in vast numbers, and he has always been saving his people. There's always been a remnant of Jews throughout history, but that will turn into a flood in time to come. Now, that, as we've said, doesn't mean that the Jews are saved through the Old Covenant. It means they must turn to faith in Christ as their own Messiah. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved than that of Jesus. The Jews don't get some separate track to salvation. And the whole of Romans and everything Paul writes about in the New Testament regarding the church is to do away with division between Jew and Gentile. They are all part of of the same family altogether. There is one olive tree. There is one family through Jesus. This is how much God's love is capable of, though, when we see it that way. This is how the fullness of God's love is revealed in Israel, that God expends all His energy to save this people, and it means breaking bits off and grafting bits in, only to then regraft in other parts later. God will do what is necessary because He loves this family. He loves this, this tree that He has created. He pours His love into Israel, and this is how we see it in God's long suffering. We see the negative side of this. Israel is languishing at the moment in, in sort of a semi-complete faith. They, they, they know so much, and yet they haven't stepped over this final hurdle, this final stumbling block. And yet, for all that we see the negative of that, we must also see the positive that God is patiently bearing with them. He hasn't rejected them. He hasn't done away with them, nor will He ever do. He'll wait for centuries. He'll wait for millennia to see His plans come to fruition before finally redeeming His people, even though in all that time they spurn Him. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that encouraging to us that we as Gentiles, He said, were disobedient for so long, and yet God showed His mercy to you, didn't He? Well, He'll do exactly the same for Israel. You were all consigned to disobedience so that the glory of God's mercy might be revealed to His salvation of you all. Amazing! This doesn't mean that God is going to save all people, but He's speaking to this group of people. You have all been consigned to disobedience so that God might reveal, manifest His glory in your salvation and not lose a single one. That's what Paul is talking about here. God's love towards Israel never runs out, and as those in Christ today, God's love never runs out towards us either, ever. He will bear with you and your brothers and sisters around you patiently. He will call you to repentance, and He will never give up on you no matter how many times we fail Him, no matter how many times we frustrate ourselves, never mind frustrate Him. And we are to rely on that love every day. It will never, ever run out. And so we run to Christ when we fail, and we praise Him when we triumph, and in Him God's love pours into us constantly every day. So praise Christ when you triumph. Confess your sins to Him when you fail. Love Him and know His love in every area of your life, in every facet of your life, each and every day, and show it to others that they might marvel with you that God persists with somebody like me. 
This is how good God is. And it's revealed to us in his perseverance with Israel. We find that in Israel, the mystery of his salvation is revealed. In Israel, the fullness of his love is revealed. And we find that in the salvation of his people, God's glory is revealed. And this is the most sort of joy-filled part of Romans so far. Paul has already broken into sort of spontaneous praise as he's gone through and he's been sort of considering the weight of his sinfulness and, and the way that he just can't ever seem to do what is right and he just sort of springs into praise that God would send Jesus to be his Savior and he does so but, but in greater degree here at the end of chapter 11 in verses 33 to 36. He just can't help himself. He spent so long from chapter 1 onwards, setting up how deplorable our circumstances are, how the crushing weight of sin presses down upon all of us. None of us are free. What are we to do? And he concludes, Jesus has come to be our Savior, and it just pours out of him. It erupts from him. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Could you ever have figured this out by yourself? the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are all His judgments and inscrutable are His ways. There's just no way for us to have figured this out. But He's done it for us. And we didn't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the very opposite of all of this. And He has found a way to honor His justice and His wrath for sin and at the same time honor His grace and His mercy in our lives. It's unbelievable. And we get to be the recipients of it. And even more unbelievably, Israel, for all of its hardness and unrepentance, will get to experience it too. If it takes 10,000 years, God will persist in his love. Who could have ever planned this but the God of the universe? Who could have ever carried this plan out to fulfillment. We remember in our studies in Genesis that the moment Adam and Eve sin, God reveals to them he already has a plan of salvation in place. All of this was planned before the first human was called into being. The salvation of men and women is for the glory of God. It sings of the glory of God in every facet, in every person that is saved. And yes, we benefit from it. And we do. Let's not deny that. But that is not the primary purpose of our salvation. The primary purpose of our salvation is the glory of God and His created order that was so broken and damaged and yet has been transformed into something so beautiful. The body of Christ, the kingdom of God. This is what Israel is for. This is what the Gentiles are for. This is what the congregation of God of which we are a small part is for pointing to the amazing glory of an astonishing God who saves sinners regardless of the depth of their sin and carries on with them though they keep failing him regardless of the degree of their failure. All things are for him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we prepare to go out into this coming week, we ask that you might bless us with the knowledge of our salvation, with just how long you've been patient with us, with just how much you have loved us, with just how much it cost you to redeem us and make us your own when we didn't deserve it. Lord, we don't want 
to have this terrible weight of guilt and shame placed upon us, that we are to go around thinking we are nothing but worms and lowly and and so on. And Lord, nor do we want to be puffed up and think that you have saved us because we are just that amazing that we deserve it. Lord, we want to have a sense of what is really true about our lives, that we were broken sinners, people who were dead in our sins. And yet you, out of nothing but grace and mercy, have stooped down and lifted us up. And Lord, if you are able to do so for us, you are able to do so for others. And there is no limit to the number of people in this world, in our communities, in our very families, who might receive the grace that you lavish upon us in Christ. We do not know their number, though you do. We don't know their faces, where they've come from, what their characters will be like for all that you do. And so we ask, Lord, that you would send us out this week pouring out praise and thanks to you in every facet of our lives. Lord, in our own lives, may we be obedient to you because you've given us this amazing transformed life to be lived for your glory. Lord God, may we share the gospel with others passionately because you might well save them just as you saved me. And you will go on calling sinners to repentance right to the very end, just as you are currently doing with Israel. Lord God, send us out with hopefulness that there will come a day when there will be a tribe of people beyond numbering that will praise your name. And we will be a part of it. And Lord God, we pray, help us to bear one another up in our struggles and in our joys, in our failures and in our triumphs. Lord God, may we testify to your goodness as we bear with one another and care for each other because we are all in the same boat together. We have all been redeemed and adopted into this one family. And it doesn't matter whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, whether we're male or female, or whether we're slave or free. We have been made part of one family freely by your grace. And so, Lord God, as none is more important than the other, may we all lift one another up be generous to one another, love each other without restraint, because Christ loves us without restraint and gave himself in the most complete way possible for each one of us. Lord God, give us confidence. Give us joy over this coming week, for we live for your glory in all things. And we ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to draw our service to a close, we're going to give glory to God, as we've been thinking about. We're going to stand together and sing as our band come and lead us. To God be the glory, great things He has done. Let's stand together.